Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life Your Term show, we sit down with Vijay Boyapati to talk about Bitcoin and specifically the bullish case for Bitcoin. If you don't know Vijay, he has written probably one of the most popular articles and introductions to Bitcoin that exist on the internet. It's a Medium article that's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. If you Google it up, you'll find it. It's a great read. If you have friends or family members who are trying to investigate this stuff but don't know where to start and you're not sure how to explain it yourself, it's an absolutely great article to share. Or if you yourself are trying to get a deeper, more meaningful understanding of, of what this thing is, the birth of possibly a brand new monetary asset right in front of our eyes during our lifetimes, it's a great article to read. We go through a bunch of stuff with VJ, get a bit of his background, which I was unaware of, and he's coming up with a new book titled The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. It's available on paperback now. I didn't realize it. I'm waiting for my hard copy version to come in the mail to read it. So I haven't read it yet, but I assume it's fantastic based on the article. And I try to stump him a little bit, just throwing out some of the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is out there around Bitcoin just to get his take and his answers on it. So we kind of do that in the second half of this podcast. I really think you're gonna enjoy this chat with VJ. And if you are listening to this and you are in the greater Toronto area and you wanna dive into the real estate market, something to consider would be going to rockstarinnercircle.com where you can check out all our books, our resources that we have, including videos, articles, archives of this podcast, anything you can imagine. So if you're trying to mix in a world of real estate and Bitcoin together, we have this podcast for you. And in the real estate world, we have a lot of resources for you on rockstarinnercircle.com. So that is rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, we are live with VJ. VJ, I hope I'm saying your last name properly, Boyapati. Perfect. Yeah. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't know your, you know what, on, on all the different podcasts I've heard you on, you articulate the message of Bitcoin so well. I'm always blown away. And I think I want to be able to articulate it as well as you do. So I'm really kind of look up to the way you do that. And you, I know your book is coming. I don't know the release date of your book. I've been selfishly waiting to get it in the mail from you so that I can read it like a hard copy. But I feel like Greg Foss, like I have this story that he told me that he saw you and immediately punched you in the arm. Was that you? He came That's right. He did. <laughs> That's a funny story. Greg is a funny guy. He's a great guy. Uh, I was at the Bitcoin conference in Miami and I was uh, signing books. I, I brought a, a print run that I'd done just for the conference. And I was in this tent and it was, it was outside. It was so hot. Uh, it was like, I don't know, hundred, hundred degrees. And it was really humid. I was just like, sweat was pouring down my face. <laughs> I had a you know big line of people uh, who wanted to get a copy of the book, which was really exciting for me. And Greg just came up, <laughs> punched me in the arm and said, he said something funny. I can't remember what it was. Something about this is like the, you know, one of the best articles or books I've read or something like that. It was, it was, it was just a funny moment. He, I love Greg. He's awesome. <laughs> He's a ball of fire. He, so he lives close to us here. And uh, when he comes in the office here, just runs around. I don't think anyone knows what to make of him. We love him. Um, and he brought us, he got us a poster, which is the Bitcoin white paper on a poster. So all the pages mm. kind of printed out. And uh, we got it framed. We got one frame for him and gave it to him. And yeah, he's just such a, a fan of what's going on and, and just like a ball of energy. But anyway, back to you, VJ. I don't know your background, so I don't know how you got into this. I've been waiting to kind of get your book and I was assuming perhaps some of that's explained. But how did you start writing about Bitcoin? I don't know that part of you. Can, can you share that? Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll go back a little bit further in time. You can probably tell from my accent that uh, I'm Australian. Uh, and I was born and raised in Australia, and uh, I studied computer science and mathematics uh, at the Australian National University. And I came to the US because I wanted to do a PhD in computer science. And I came here in 2000, end of 2000. So, you know, a long time ago. Uh, but I didn't end up 
pursuing the PhD, I, I ended up getting a job offer and then I ended up at this you know, small startup at the time called Google. And I was at Google for several years and I was an software engineer at Google. And then I left Google in uh, to, late 2007 to go campaign in the presidential election, the US presidential election. And by then I was a US citizen. Uh, and I was really, really excited about this candidate, Ron Paul, uh, who was talking about this message of sound money and the importance of human freedom and why it's important to not meddle in the affairs of other countries overseas and why, why we should trade with other countries. We shouldn't go to war with other countries. I thought these were just incredibly exciting and inspiring messages. So I, I quit my very lucrative job at Google to go campaign for Ron. Uh, I went to New Hampshire, raised a few million dollars, brought hundreds of volunteers from around the country, knocked on you know tens of thousands of doors around the state of New Hampshire, gave out a lot of US constitutions to people and said, you know, this is the document that Ron Paul, you know, supports the US constitution. You know, shouldn't everyone support this? This is the law of the land. That was really fun. But, you know, I, I kind of um, got acquainted with what uh, the political process is. And um, I learned that there are these much more powerful forces at work, you know, beyond what you can do with grassroots activism, there's the media and, and the media in New Hampshire decided to completely shut Ron out, even though he had raised a ton of money, it was, had a huge passionate base of support. They said, no, nope, we're not going to include you in the debate. And that really killed his chances. Uh, and that made me pretty cynical about the political process and how it's very manipulated and controlled. Uh, so I was uh, a little dejected for a couple of years um, after that, and I went back to, to the world of software and um, startups and stuff like that. Uh, and then I came across Bitcoin in 2011, uh, and I came across it when I had a bet with a friend of mine, and the bet was about the Federal Reserve, and it, you know they have these uh, periodic meetings about whether to increase interest rates or keep them the same or decrease them. And we had a bet and I won the bet about whether they would increase or not. And the bet was for one silver coin, uh, one ounce silver coin, which at the time was worth $50. And I won the bet and my friend said, well, how about I pay you in this other thing instead of the silver? I can give you the silver, but there's something that's better than it. It's, it's Bitcoin. It's this new form of money online. I had no idea what he was talking about. It sounded kind of like a scam to me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine. Because my friend is probably the best investor that I know. And so I just trusted him that I would take it and, you know, maybe look into it later. And he said, well, you need to download some software. I'm like, huh? And so I had to download the Bitcoin core client and sync the blockchain on this tiny little laptop, which was really not designed to do anything. Uh, and it took hours and hours. I'm like, what is going on? Why do I need to do any of this? And then eventually it synced the blockchain and he showed me how to generate an address and he sent me uh, the same dollar value, $50 at the time was five Bitcoins. And he sent me five Bitcoins and he said, look at this. And he showed me a very primitive block explorer, which was, had no user interface was terrible it's just strings and numbers and he said see i sent you five bitcoins and i was like okay i guess i i didn't even know how to interpret any of the things i was looking at uh and so that's how i got my first bitcoins and i um funny stories that that laptop uh i gave to an ex-girlfriend many years ago and no. because it wasn't really worth much it was maybe worth a hundred dollars at the time and then in 2017, as Bitcoin went on this, you know, big bull market run, uh, I thought, wow, that laptop is worth $10,000. It's worth 20. It's worth 50. It's worth a hundred that I better contact her and like find out what happened to it. And she told me that actually it had been lost uh, at a hotel in Minnesota. And I believe her actually, because you can see on the blockchain that those Bitcoins have never moved. Uh, they're essentially dead now. The laptop's probably in a dumpster somewhere. Uh, so, but yeah, that's how I first got exposed to Bitcoin. And the thing that really, you know, after many years of trying to understand what it was, I, I got really excited because I feel like you can change the world, not just through politics, but through technology. And I saw Bitcoin as a way to move 
those ideas that Ron Paul was talking about that I think is so important to move the, those ideas forward through technology. Uh, and I feel like it brings a lot of hope to people because they don't, if the political process doesn't work for them or is failing or is manipulated, there's another way to go, go about things. And, and Bitcoin gives us that way. And, and so it's been something that's very inspiring for me. And I've spent the last decade or so uh, going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, trying to understand it. And okay, just, so I uh, want to ask you, I, sorry, sorry. I want to ask you more about that specific point, but before mm -hmm. I do, why did they not let Ron Paul on the stage in the debates or in the media? That is a media choice. So that is, is the major media outlets almost colluding together, you know, and yeah. I'm not trying to intentionally use the word colluding to make it sound, but to me, it, it feels that way. When I see that, it feels like they're all getting together saying, okay, we're going to eliminate this guy. Is that what yeah. you felt was happening? Oh, definitely felt like that at the time. I don't know if they purposely thought that way, but there's definitely uh, a bias towards establishment thinking and thinkers. And there's definitely collusion between the media and people who represent a point of view that the media is friendly with. Uh, so then and, does, that, does that mean the media is owned by financial interests? Like do some of the big banks in the US own some of the big media outlets or no? Uh, I am not sure about the specific details of that. I just okay. feel like it, it's a certain mindset that's shared amongst these institutions. And part of it comes from the fact that they read the same, you know, thought pieces, they read the same newspapers, they listen to the same so-called experts from universities. And so they just have the same mindset. And so they defend the status quo because they're part of this kind of overarching establishment, even if they're not coordinating with each other explicitly, they are for the status quo. And, and they're one institution that's part of defending the status quo. There are many institutions which defend the status quo. The banking system, for instance, will defend itself by trying to push regulations through Congress that are beneficial to them at the expense of the population in general. Uh, so the media... Uh, excluded Ron and it was partly because he was saying things which were they just hadn't been said before and they didn't know how to interpret it and and they said well he's not a real candidate he's a fringe candidate but the thing is those those ideas have become much more popular over the last decade I think people look back and say whoa actually Ron Paul was right. Going into Afghanistan was a huge mistake for the United States. It was a huge mistake. The, the country spent trillions of dollars you know, thousands of lives, US lives were lost, hundreds of thousands probably of a Afghanistani lives were lost. And for what? what? What benefit did anyone get out of? The US is now out of Afghanistan in a very humiliating manner. Um, and, and, and all these young kids, essentially, soldiers who were sent there, who, who, who lost their lives, how it affects their family. It's just a great, great tragedy for, for the country. And Ron was talking about that in, in uh, the 2008 when it was very unpopular and no one wanted to listen to him. And they said, well, you're not a real Republican because you don't believe in defending our freedom. And for them, defending freedom meant attacking other countries. But that's never been the American way. You know, George Washington was the first president. He talked about America should avoid uh, entangling itself in the affairs of foreign countries because it'll come back to haunt us. And it did. It has. Uh, so I think, you know, people have wised up a lot and, and they realize that some of these ideas, uh, even if they may not attribute them to Ron Paul, are much more acceptable now. People realize that um, America shouldn't be an interventionist country. It should pursue a foreign policy that uh, is peaceful and is based on free trade. Uh, yeah, you know, back back in the day, this was very controversial, and so the media was not sure. very friendly friendly toward it. Okay, so now then, back to the technology and Bitcoin. You mentioned it provides a sense of hope, or why are you saying it in that way? Because I feel very similar. You know, I didn't get a chance to explain who your audience is here, but our business was started in 2007, 2008, and it was to help Canadians buy rental properties because my brother and I, I worked at Oracle and then I worked at NetSuite and I left because I had some rental properties and they were generating this cash flow and the value was going up and I was frustrated working in the corporate world. So I just said, I learned a ton from working at Oracle and NetSuite. I mean, these, you know, these software companies you just learn so much at. 
And uh, I left because I felt we could help other people who wanted to buy rental properties. And we thought we were front running government monetary policy back then. And rental properties was one of the very few ways we thought, oh, this is a way we can do it. We get the asset growth, we get cash flow, we get some tax advantages. And, you know, I guess we incorporated in 2008, Bitcoin was like born in 2009. And I was like, wow, we really should have probably jumped on that Bitcoin bandwagon right at the exact same, same <laughs> time. But I told everybody Bitcoin was basically foolish for about from I told it, all my friends who told me about it from 2016 to 2020. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Don't even pay attention to this Bitcoin thing. I'm a business owner. I know. That's how I used to explain. Listen, I run a business. I have to pay taxes. I, I, you should listen to me. <laughs> 20, March 2020, <laughs> March 2020, COVID, we're all shut down. I heard a bunch of people ran into your article, read the Bitcoin standard, ran over to my brother's office and said, we got it all wrong. We got it all wrong because we're big gold guys. We're, we're like real estate and gold. I'm like, we are. All, we have to get as much Bitcoin as we can possibly get. We got to do it today. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the turnaround we had. So then to me, it fits perfectly with our story. We have a, a motto for our business is your life, your terms, which is this like YLYT thing that I have here because we're buying real estate, not to become landlords, to build a financial asset base so that you can have some financial freedom. And Bitcoin just obviously fits ridiculously perfect with that whole message for us. So when mm -hmm. I hear you say that Bitcoin is using technology to provide people hope, can you elaborate? What, what do you mean by that? Like, where, where is that coming from? Yeah, so one of the most basic human needs or necessities is to, uh, to work and to accumulate savings and use those savings to benefit your family and, and to, to plan for the future and to build a future for yourself. And accumulating savings in a system that's controlled by government money is a process where you, your savings are melting over time. It's like a, a block of ice that's sitting out in the sun, slowly melting away, unless you do something about it. And this actually forces people uh, in various professions to have to go out and look for ways to invest their money. And it, it drives people almost to gamble. This is why in America, you have this trend of people day trading stocks and looking at things like GameStop as a way of like, I, you know, if you're a doctor and you're earning money, you shouldn't have to think about like the value of your money decreasing over time. You should be focusing on your profession and, and bettering yourself and being the best doctor you can be or, or the best teacher you can be or the best baker, whatever it is. Um, so we live in a system which has been taken over by governments, and this is actually a historical anomaly. Most of history, uh, governments did not control money in this way. Gold was money or silver was money. And, and the good thing about gold and silver is that the supply is can't be manipulated by a government. A government can't say, well, it's in our political interest to double the money supply, even though, though this is bad for everyone. It's in our political interest to do it, so we're going to do it. Gold couldn't gold can't be created. It doesn't grow on trees. It's it's very hard to produce. So you could rely on the supply being essentially fairly fixed. It grows pretty slowly. The supply of gold grows by about 2% per year. So you knew. Um, you know, if you were someone in the 19th century who was working in a profession and you were saving and putting your money in gold, you knew that the purchasing power of your gold would be carried into the future. And that really uh, is one of the most important functions of money is that it helps reduce our uncertainty about the future because we are storing the fruits of our labor in something that can't be manipulated and whose supply is essentially scarce. Uh, so... You, we live in this historical anomaly that's been, you know, around for about a century. Uh, and, and I think it's going to end, end very badly because you can see all around the world, governments have created such a massive amount of money. The US government in the last year or year and a half has created trillions of dollars just at the snap of their finger that they were able to do this. And you know, they try to act like they know what they're doing. It's like the wizard behind the curtain who tries to give you the impression that they, they're in control. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. And this is an unprecedented historical monetary experiment, and it could go bad at, at any stage. So, you know, the, the thing about Bitcoin is it kind of mimics these properties that made gold fantastic as money for thousands of years. Uh, 
And we can talk about the attributes that make for a good money. But, but Bitcoin goes even beyond gold. It's like gold, which has teleportation built in. You can, uh, with gold, you can store your value over time really well because you know it can't be created easily. But it's very hard to move gold through space. Uh, I believe you're in Canada, Tom. If I wanted to send you like some value in gold, it's very difficult, inconvenient, costly. It's tough uh, to send know, US dollars. Never mind yeah. gold. It's tough to send US dollars to me over here. <laughs> exactly. But I could send you value using Bitcoin as easily as I could send you an email. And that is a, a, a profound innovation to money. This has never been possible before. Satoshi, when he published his white paper, solved a fundamental problem of computer science. And by solving that problem, which is known as the Byzantine generals problem, he made something possible that had never been possible, which is I can send value to someone on the other side of the world almost instantly without anyone being an intermediary between us, like a bank or a nation state sort of vouching for the payment. You don't need that. You can send value directly. And, and that has profound implications for global trade, uh, for human freedom, uh, for for, for property many rights. things, yes. property rights, exactly. Uh, and, and money really acts as the foundation for all trade and all savings in an economy. So an innovation to the foundational layer of an economy, the global economy is a very, very important thing. Uh, so Bitcoin is like, to me, it's like a once in a century type event, the creation of Bitcoin. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about it, because I, I do think it's going to change many aspects of our lives. And, and one of them is getting back to what I was saying. It makes it so much better for people uh, to save their fruits, the fruits of their labor. So when you're a, a professional, you can put money into Bitcoin, knowing that it, it's not going to be debased and that you can take it anywhere on earth or send it anywhere on earth without anyone's permission. So it's just this fantastic vehicle for keeping your savings in. Yeah, I agree with that so strongly. Like, why is it that I see older people now clipping coupons and worried about their heating bills when they've worked their whole lives? I want that generation to have enough savings value that they can act as mentors, have freedom, live in peace, sleep well, and be a mentor to me and to my children. Instead, I feel like there's a generation of older people who are so worried about running out of money because their savings are losing value that they're left to kind of scramble and concern themselves at a stage of their life where I feel like they should be rewarded and celebrated. So I, I, I strongly feel, I look at my own parents who are immigrants here to Canada. If they saved up $10,000 in 1980s when my father was working drywall and then passed it on to my children, his grandchildren today, what's that $10,000 worth? But it might've represented a quarter of a year's work for him in the 1980s. And now yeah. what is that? You know, so so to me, that is complete theft. And I know people, when I talk like that, they're like, Tom, just calm down, take a breath. But I, I feel really strongly that that's incorrect, not moral, and is changing the, our, our, you know, the societal impact of that is greater than we will admit to or discuss often. So I yeah. love it when you, when you, you know, when you, someone like you comes along and articulates it much better than I can um, and puts it down on paper there. I, I want to, uh, a question I get all the time is Tom, I'm thinking about getting into Bitcoin, but it's so volatile. It's like, so, you know, it's, I hear it's 20,000, it's 10,000, it's 60,000. This is way too volatile. So my explanation is I'm like, well, when the Medici family started putting gold coins together in Florence. I'm sure one day somebody said, I'll take one of those gold coins and I'll give you three cows. And next day, somebody said, maybe I'll give you 10 cows. Then the next day, someone said, well, I'm not going to give you 10 cows. I don't know what these gold coins are about. They look pretty new to me. I'm going to give you five cows. So in a span of three days, the amount of cows exchanged for a gold coin went from three to 10 to five. That's pretty volatile. And it's because these Medici gold coins that they were minting in the 12th century or 15th century, can't remember, but you know, it was new. And so people were figuring out, so it was volatile. Then hundreds of years pass and it gets, you know, it's not as volatile. So I explained to everyone, that's my way of, of explaining BJ, <laughs> that like Bitcoin, we're in that stage of Bitcoin. It's, it's kind of all over the place. What do you say when people come to you with, I'd like to buy some, but I can't afford to do that. That's too volatile to hold my savings in that. How do you, how do you talk to that? Yeah, so there's two ways to respond to that. First is the economic and one is the personal financial. I'll talk about both of them. The economic reason is that Bitcoin is going through the process of monetization, which is the process of becoming money. 
Uh, and as something becomes money, it's inevitably going to have volatility. Uh, you didn't really see that as much with gold because the process of monetization for gold took many, many thousands of years. And, and we don't have you know, an accurate portrayal of what was happening 5,000 years ago with the price of gold, but probably it was pretty volatile as well, just, just like you're saying. Um, Bitcoin is limited in supply. And as the number of people that adopt it as a form of savings increases, it, its price has to go up. And then what happens is people observe the price going up. Other people jump in just as a sort of speculative thing. This is the, the madness of crowds. And so the price goes really up really quickly in this parabolic fashion. And then it, it crashes down to a level that was higher than its you know, previous plateau. And Bitcoin has gone through a number of these cycles. It's just they get bigger and bigger and bigger. It, it's just this is how monetization happens. And this is the first time in history we've seen the monetization of an economic good in real time. So we're learning. And this is one of the things we've learned is that uh, volatility is part of the process. And it kind of makes sense. Which asset is going to go from being worth zero to being a trillion dollars in a decade, which is very short period of time with no volatility. It's just absolutely impossible. This is a, it's a true free market. It's a process of price discovery. People are trying to figure out what it's worth. And so it is going to move up and down generally over, you know, a long enough period, say two to three years, it only moves up. Uh, and that is because people, more and more people are adopting it as a form of saving. So that's the economic answer. It's, it's um, something in the process, early stage of becoming money. I call it nascent money. Uh, the financial answer is as a sort of personal matter, if you worry about the volatility of Bitcoin, you just need to size your position appropriately. Um, if you uh, can't handle too much volatility, instead of putting 5% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, put 1%. That's totally fine. If you, if you can't stomach the volatility, just reduce the position to the point where you can stomach it. The only position that doesn't make sense, in my opinion, is zero, having no uh, exposure, because this is the best form of money that has humanity has ever seen. So how can you have no exposure to it? You could be wrong. And if you're wrong, you're missing out on the greatest investment opportunity of all time, which is the best asymmetric bet that people all across the world can participate in. Uh, so I tell people, at least have a little bit. Um, and, and if that means 1%, that's fine. Most people, their portfolio will move by 1% every day because of stocks fluctuating or real estate going up and down. So they don't even notice that. If it completely went to zero, you wouldn't notice. So, you know, for, for most people, I think starting at 1% is fine. And then they become more comfortable with it. And you notice people over time thinking, wow, this, is, is, this started at 1%. Now it's worth 4% or 5%. And they get interested and they go down the rabbit hole and they try and understand why is it increasing in value? This is something that I've been obsessed with for a decade. Why does Bitcoin have any value? Why is it increasing in value? And once you start going down that rabbit hole and understanding that this is the best form of money that's ever existed, you start thinking, well, maybe I should have more of this. <laughs> maybe 1% isn't the right number. Uh, and, and you see it in a lot of people. And it also, interestingly, I feel like it has this effect of transforming people's lives. Not many investments do that. And I've seen this in, you know, enough people to know that this isn't just some coincidence. People recognize that this is a truly scarce good uh, that is strictly limited in, in supply. And it slowly changes their preferences to being, you know, um, living a, a extravagant lifestyle to becoming more frugal and saying, well, maybe I should offset my spending now to accumulate more Bitcoin because I know it's going to increase in purchasing power. Um, so instead of buying a really expensive car, maybe I'll buy a more reasonable car and I'll keep some of that extra savings in Bitcoin and I can use the extra purchasing power that comes from that a few years down the line for something else. And I've seen this happen and over and over again where people become more frugal, uh, they, they, they think more about the future. Um, they think about all of these, you know, sort of almost moral issues that never been exposed to. Like, why am I spending all this money? Why am I living this uh, lifestyle that I don't need to live? Uh, and so I've seen a moral financial transformation in a lot of people once they got interested in Bitcoin and kind of went down the rabbit hole. Why it's important, why sound money is important, um, why it's important to society and why it's valuable to the individual. Um, 
So, so I have yeah, so that, that's then. a long no, way to answer great. the question. No, no, Paul, that's, Paul, a, that, that's great. I'm just letting you go. I'm glad you speak so well. And it's without taking a glass of water there or a sip of water or anything. This is fantastic. So what about this, um, VJ? Bitcoin doesn't earn me interest. It doesn't produce cash flow. What would you say to that? You know, hey, I'm not going to buy. Like, why am I going to invest in, in Bitcoin? It's uh, no interest, no cash flow. Forget it. Yeah. That's actually a really great question because, uh, you know, traditional financial assets like stocks or bonds or real estate produce cash flow. And most people can understand their valuation based on that. If you say, well, this house seems expensive, it's a million dollars. And then you're told, well, it generates 50 or $70,000 in rent a year. You say, oh, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense because that's a good yield. Um, money is a very, very difficult topic that most people find it hard to wrap their heads around because money is a, an economic good that doesn't generate cash flow yet is valuable. And gold is just like this as well. Gold doesn't generate any cash flow at all. Like gold is a rock that just sits there. Um, so how does, how, does, how, do, how does money get its value? Well, it's set in a very different way to traditional financial assets who get their value through uh, discounted cash flow analysis. You sort of look at the, the lifetime cash flow of an asset and you discount that into the present. You say, this is how you get the value for the good. That's not how money gets its value. Money gets its value game theoretically. It comes from people trying to anticipate whether other people will want to hold that money in the future. And what do you base that on? You base it on whether the economic good has attributes that make it suitable as money. And what are the attributes that make something suitable as money? We've known these for a very long time. Uh, Aristotle wrote about these thousands of years ago. Divisibility. It should be able to be divided into small pieces because we use money for trade. We need to be able to divide it into smaller pieces to, to trade. Um, it should be fungible. Every unit should be equivalent to every other unit. So, for instance, gold is much better as, mo as money than diamonds because every piece of gold is equivalent to every other piece when you melt it down, whereas diamonds are very irregular in shape and quality. And so they're, they're inconvenient for trade. Uh, it, it should be portable because you want to be able to carry value around fairly easily. So cows aren't as good money as gold. And actually in some society, early societies, cows were used as money, but gold outcompeted cows because it's more portable. Um, and probably the most important one is scarcity because you want to keep your savings in something that can't be created easily. If And so, for instance, gold is much better than sand. Uh, if sand were money, you'd go to the beach, you'd take a bucket and you'd put sand in it and say, I'm rich. And, and everyone else who had sand would say, well, now I'm less rich because you were able to become rich and, you know, go get some sand. Uh, whereas gold is very, very hard to produce. It takes a lot of energy and you have to dig up the ground to get even a small amount of gold. Uh, so scarcity is probably the most important attribute that's been uh, selected by humans over the millennia uh, for when people choose something as money. Um, and Bitcoin is just better along all of the attributes that make for a good money. And that's, that's where it's getting its value because people are slowly but surely recognizing it has these superior attributes and saying, I would prefer to keep my savings in this form of money rather than this other form of money, be it uh, fiat money, US or Canadian dollars or gold or uh, you know other instruments like that. And over time, that shift of people's desire to keep their savings in these other forms of money to Bitcoin will inc increase its price and uh, its total market capitalization. So that's, that's how money gets its value. It's by people recognizing it has the attributes that make for good money. I like that a lot. And, and sometimes I try to explain that what I believe that money shouldn't return any yield because I earn the interest or yield or cash flow from taking some sort of risk. But money itself, I should have no risk with my money or my savings. But if I take my money and I put it into a bank account, well, now I don't have full control of, over it. So I get whatever it is today, 0.02% interest or whatever, because I'm taking some risk by handing it over to the bank, they're doing something with it, or I invest in some stocks or a property or something, but money itself, my savings shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have any. Your way of explaining is obviously 
the much better way of explaining it. That's my little kind of just trying to change. I'm just trying to change the, um, the thought process of like your money itself doesn't shouldn't have any risk associated with it. Yeah. Money should, should, money should be the risk off asset. It should be the thing that you keep your savings in just to keep the purchasing power over time. Now, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that it's not, not currently a risk off asset. It's a risk on asset. And the reason it's a risk on asset is because it's in the process of monetization. Once Bitcoin gets to the same market capitalization of gold, its volatility and its risk will drop you know, commensurately, it will have a volatility similar, similar to gold. You, you think it, so around that time? Is that what your best guess would be? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, okay. I think once it surpasses gold in size, which I believe it will, because I think it's far superior to gold as money. Once it surpasses gold in size, I think its volatility will drop even lower than gold's volatility. Uh, and eventually it'll drop so low that it'll become suitable as a medium of exchange. Right now, it's not as useful as a medium of exchange, partly because people who hold Bitcoin don't want to spend it, right? Yeah. There's this famous <laughs> famous story of someone who bought uh, two pizzas 10 years ago for 10,000 Bitcoin, and those 10,000 Bitcoin are now worth $400 million. Uh, so people have learned over time that Bitcoin is fantastic for savings, but it's not good for spending yet. It's not really something you want to spend yet because it, it has such tremendous upside that you want to save it until it becomes essentially globally adopted. Totally. I got to uh, tell you a story. You know how Twitter turned on with lightning and strike the tips option. So I don't want, I've been tipping some people, by the way, your tips options not on. I just checked. I was going to say, yeah, they haven't enabled it for me. They're rolling it out. Slowly. Okay. So they, okay. They Cause I want to send you some, why we were doing this right now, but, but uh, so I will, when it, when it, when it's, uh, when it's enabled, but in Canada, we can only send out, we can't receive. So we're in this weird position. We're sending our Bitcoin out. We're not pulling any in, um, but I don't want to associate my Bitcoin savings with any tips. So like what I use for my tips, I just take some Canadian fiat dollars, put it into Bitcoin quickly into my blue wallet and, uh, and I, I don't even associate that as any of my Bitcoin savings. Cause I'm like, I don't want to separate myself from these, this, these sats. Right. So yeah, I'm like allocated a, a bunch of Bitcoin that I'm like, okay, that's not actually mine because of what you said. I don't want to send any of my Bitcoin out. So I have these like weird buckets of Bitcoin, you know, some of it I'm mentally not associating with actual Bitcoin as ridiculous as that sounds, because I know I'm going to use it for things like tips and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It becomes long-term savings and you can see that your mindset has kind of wrecked recognize that it is a better form of savings. So you have some of your savings where you think, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to touch that for a long time because I know this is a great form of savings. And I know that other people are going to recognize that in the future. And that's going back to what I said before. That's part of the game theory. You have figured out something early and you're anticipating that other people will figure it out too. Uh, and so you've decided it's better to keep some savings uh, that I'm not going to touch for a long time. Totally, totally. Okay. Another question or something else to maybe throw at you. Um, so it all sounds good. VJ government's going to shut it down. And, you know, I guess the one I'd like to throw at you, cause some people talk taxing it, regulating it. I've thought maybe in Canada, do they say you have 30 days to get it on the exchange? So, you know, if you don't put it back onto an exchange here in Canada within 30 days, you'll never be able to do that again. You know, maybe something like that and kind of make, wallets, you know, a hardware wallet where you can kind of custody it yourself, not possible. What do you think of those threats? Um, and you have some other threats in your article, you know, port, the protocol itself. Um, when people throw these things at you, how do you respond? Is there a real one that stands out for you uh, that is most imminent as a possible threat, like the US government, perhaps? I can't see them saying, making the thing outright illegal to, to hold it at this point. But anyway, let me just throw that at you. What's the, what's the number one threat or is there a number one threat? Does it concern you? What would it be? Yeah, I think state attack is a legitimate risk. And I think it's the number one risk to, to Bitcoin. And I view this ultimately as a question of political capture. Does Bitcoin get enough political capture that this is politically infeasible. And, and what I mean by this, I like to give the example of the ride-sharing company Uber, uh, where they, they had this strategy of going into cities without asking anyone's permission and starting their service. And, and they 
you know, get a, a base of users who are very passionate about using it, using it, and a bunch of drivers who worked for for the service and made a bunch of money. And and the people in this ecosystem were very passionate about Uber because it really benefited them as much as far superior to the the taxi, the legacy taxi system. But eventually, the ta- the taxi lobby would come. Uh, around and figure out that they were being their business was being destroyed and they'd go to the local city government and say you need to shut this down or regulate it because they're killing us but by the time the the sort of political process started moving to try and ban uber and this happened in cities across the world it had become so deeply entrenched and so used that it had a natural lobby from the people who loved the service or who made money from the service who were a counterweight against the status quo system that was trying to kill Uber. And I think the same thing is true with Bitcoin. As more and more people have their savings in Bitcoin, they become a natural lobby for Bitcoin because they don't want to see the value of their savings being destroyed. Um, And you see this in the United States. We even have a US senator now who owns Bitcoin and is a a very strong advocate for Bitcoin and defender of Bitcoin. Uh, or tries to prevent bad regulations that would harm Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin's not quite there yet. It doesn't have enough adoption that it's politically immune. But I'm very optimistic that this will be the case within the next four to five years. And it's an open question. Will we see a major state attack on Bitcoin over the next five years or so? Or will it get to the point where it becomes politically invulnerable because, say, 50% of the United States owns Bitcoin? You can imagine, like, if the United States government said we're banning 401ks, like the retirement program in the US, you'd have a revolution on the streets. People would be, say, you know, you can't take my retirement savings. You, you just can't do that. And, and politicians will sort of follow the mood of the people and they'll start getting elected uh, and being pro-Bitcoin. And so it, it just won't be possible to, to regulate or, or kill it anymore. But I do think it's a legitimate risk, and I don't think Bitcoin is politically immune just yet. Uh, if it were the case that every nation state on earth got together today and said, we are going to make it illegal to hold Bitcoin and we'll throw you in jail if you own it or you run any node software, that would be a tremendous blow to Bitcoin. It would really... Uh, halt the process of monetization or maybe even reverse it. But I see that as a very low risk because the United States has a very long tradition of uh, human freedom. And and whether or not the government is supporting at the time, there's this remnant of the population that really strongly believes in that. It's very hard to push things through, which are very anti-freedom in the US. And we, we also have a First Amendment in the US, which protects the right to speech. Uh, and that actually protects Bitcoin because really Bitcoin is just a form of speech. It's just people running software on their computers, which sends messages back and forth. That's all it's really doing. That's what the network is doing. It just happens to be that money is really an expression of speech. And it's kind of hard to think about, but that's what money is. It's a system of coordination between people. So I think that provides a strong protection in the US that makes it pretty unlikely that we'll see any kind of major attack but it's an open question we'll see we'll see what happens over the next years i'm i'm quietly optimistic but i i I don't dismiss this as a risk when people say this is you know something i'm worried about yeah and so then what do you think over the next few years earlier you were kind of alluding to the fact that the current system is going to eventually change or need to end in transform itself in some capacity. Is that something that you think occurs over the next decade, your lifetime? If you had to guess, when does that kind of transition happen? Or, you know, or is it just a slow fading away and Bitcoin kind of grows and grows and starts to take over as some form of money for, for the majority of people? Like, is it, is it a smooth transition I just, I get asked that a lot. And I just like to get your, your thoughts on that. Or is it like a sudden collapsing of faith in the U S dollar and holy shit, we're up the Creek. And it's a little bit of a chaotic transition. It could happen in either way. It really could. Um, It depends on how governments react, uh, whether they, whether they're antagonistic and they, they try to maintain the status quo and, uh, they continue to do what they're doing, which is printing more and more money. It could end very badly. It could end like the Weimar Republic 
in in Germany, uh, where they printed so much money that they destroyed their monetary system and the whole the society essentially collapsed. Hyperinflation is a, a society destroying event when the monetary system collapses because they've created so much of it that you know people are walking around with wheelbarrows full of cash and they don't they don't believe in its its value anymore because money has that foundational role in an economy. When the money dies, the economy dies. Um, so that that's definitely a possibility. But then there's also a, a hopeful, optimistic possibility. You can look at uh, El Salvador as an example of a country which said, well, let's just let Bitcoin compete as a, an, another form of money. People can use it if they want. They don't have to use it, but we'll have it as like another form of money in our country. Uh, they're a dollarized country, which means that the money in their society is the dollar. But now they've added Bitcoin as a as legal tender in El Salvador. And that's an example where you could see Bitcoin slowly transition to being the dominant money in that country, the dominant form of savings that El Salvadorians say, I want to keep my savings in uh, Bitcoin rather than dollars. And that's a slow, peaceful transition, which doesn't involve any economic collapse. It's just the dollar slowly fades out. And I think that would be an ideal scenario but it really comes down to how governments are going to handle this transition, whether they fight it and uh, pursue these insane economic policies that they've been pursuing for the last couple of decades, or, or whether they give people choice and, and let them sort of move over to a new monetary system, which I think is coming. It's inevitable, right? Um, it's out there. Every one of us can freely choose it whether to adopt like it. it. Yeah. And it just feels like there's a different many of my friends who would never have these discussions seem interested or at least open, or they've, they've heard of Bitcoin, they have questions and even their objections feel more like they're looking for reasons to buy it. They just have some more questions about it, right? It's like classic sales, you know, someone's throwing you objections where you're like, Oh, you know, you're kind of interested. I see. <laughs> yeah. It's a mental pipeline. And I I've talked about this on Twitter a little bit. It's I, I call it the number of touch points and a person needs to hear or to be exposed to before they're open to a new idea. And for some people, it's just a couple, but some people it's like 10 or 20 and they have to hear about that thing from everyone around them before they're interested in they're or they're open-minded enough to, to look into it. Uh, and uh, for me, I was lucky that two people that I really trusted came to me and said, you really need to look into this. And that was all I needed. But maybe for my parents, it's going to take like, everyone they know telling them that they need some Bitcoin <laughs> before they go out and get some. Our 74 year old mother has some Bitcoin and we're trying, we're working on our 81 year old dad. So just, uh, <laughs> we're getting there. So I want them to carry around and have some, some Bitcoin for themselves. I'll never forget the second time I really felt I heard Bitcoin. It was a, it was somebody, I was at a, a conference in, in uh, just outside of Cleveland. Somebody put their arm around me. I'll never forget. Cause they were talking to me about Bitcoin and I kind of laughed it off again. And they put their arm around me and they said, oh, you're going to get it or you, oh, you'll, you're, you'll get this. And I just, it, the way they said it or the feeling I had in that moment just struck me like, wait, mm. what? You know, like there's, but then I didn't do anything for another, I guess it would be like two years, but it was, that, it was just a second time where it was like, I don't know if it was the way it was said or who was saying it, but it just hits you a little bit deeper. And then finally it took me another two years. I was much, much later than you figuring this stuff out. Yeah. So you moved from that. that yeah, you move from that skeptical brain to the curious brain. And you can see it sometimes in people when they, that, that light goes off and they make that transition uh, where they're curious and you know that they're ready to figure out why it's important. And yeah, it's really exciting for me when I see that in someone. It's totally, it's really cool. yeah, yeah. Okay, one more thing I wanted to ask you, just the whole energy talk, because that's another thing I get a lot. So I'd like to hear the way you, you discuss it. Um, Bitcoin and, and energy, and, and for anyone out there who has heard, oh, it wastes energy or uses too much energy, how do you ta tackle that topic? Yeah, so Bitcoin mining, which miners are part of the Bitcoin network, they're computers that expend energy to verify, validate transactions, and they get rewarded with Bitcoins for doing that. And as the price of Bitcoin goes up, the incentive to mine goes up, which means they expend more energy. Now, people have said this is really bad. This is bad for the environment because expending energy is, they think it's just bad by in and of itself. It's actually very misleading. There's a lot of nuance to this topic. Uh, the first thing I would say is Bitcoin miners uh, really have an incredibly strong incentive to find the cheapest energy 
they can get. And what this means is they tend to gravitate to places on Earth where they have a massive overcapacity of energy production. And an example of this is the Sichuan province in China, where they had uh, these hydroelectric dams that the Chinese government had massively overbuilt. They produced so much more energy than the people in the, that region could use. And energy is not fungible. You can't take that excess energy and ship it to Canada and do something with it. You just can't do that. So it just gets wasted. And so Bitcoin miners would go to places like that um, and say, we'll take your excess energy and we can use that. We'll mine, use it to mine Bitcoin, which is worth something. Uh, and so you see miners go to places where there's excess capacity. And these places tend to be very green. So hydroelectric dams or geothermal energy in Iceland. Uh, and there's also, um, I think, a very exciting development where uh, miners go to places like Texas, where you have... Uh, the process of mining, you have all this outgassing that ha happens with methane and it just goes straight into the environment. And methane is actually much, much worse than other hydrocarbons. Uh, and Bitcoin miners go to places like this and say, well, you can't, it's not economical for you to transport that methane anywhere. So you're not going to do it. You're just letting it out into the air, but we could use it. We could take that methane. We could use it to supply our little mining rig and generate Bitcoin. And we can consume that methane as an energy source. And it's actually pulling uh, um, greenhouse gases that would go into our environment out and using it to, to produce Bitcoin. And that's one of the things which I think is fantastic about Bitcoin is it's going to unlock these energy sources that would otherwise be uneconomical. I think this is one of the greenest developments it's very counterintuitive. It's one of the greenest, most environmentally friendly developments in the last century. This is this could save our environment because it's going to make it so much more. Um, uh, it's going to provide such a large incentive to unlock these renewable sources, which otherwise people would say, "Why would I do that? It's not worth it to do that." There's no one, perhaps no one living in that region where you have this uh, sustainable source, so I'm not going to try and tap into it. But now with Bitcoin, you can say, well, let's develop the energy source because we can use it to, to generate Bitcoin uh, and maybe people will move to that region once the energy source is developed. And so it just changes the incentive structure in the energy market completely. Globally too, like globally. globally. Yeah. And, and Gre actually Greg was telling me a story of there's a company near here with some energy source um, they were using the excess to boil off water because they were going to get penalized and taxed if it was released in a certain way. So they were using the energy to boil water and then it would be released as steam. And he was telling them, he went to talk to them about something else. Then he started talking about Bitcoin mining and they were all interested in throwing on some Bitcoin miners on top of this existing energy source that they were just essentially trying to release so that they didn't get taxed in a negative yeah. way. There's stranded energy all around the world that just can't be tapped into because it's not economic to move it. And Bitcoin means that you can go develop the energy source without the worry that you have to transport yeah. it anywhere, which is a, a, an amazing, amazing development. So now you, so you have this great article on Medium for anyone listening who enjoys the way VJ explains this stuff, the bullish case for Bitcoin. If you just Google that up, you're going to hit your Medium article. Now you have a book coming out. I'm really excited to read the book. Why, why the book is the book an extension of the article, I assume. Um, can you just talk to us about your thinking behind putting the book together? Yeah. So the article was written in 2018, uh, sorry, 2017 and published early 2018. And I, when I wrote it, I didn't anticipate that it would get read very much. It was mostly just for friends to say, you know, asking me these questions about why I think Bitcoin's valuable, check this out. And maybe I'd get lucky and some professionals in on Wall Street would read it. It ended up getting read about over a million times. It was translated by various people around the world without being paid uh, into 20, 20 different languages. <clears throat> so I was, you know, I was completely blown away by the interest and it showed me that people really cared about this topic and wanting, they wanted to understand and it, it struck a note with or struck a chord with people. But then I thought, well, you know, I had a lot of people ask me to turn it into a book and I said, well, I think most of the stuff that I wanted to say is in the article. It's all it's there. Free. Yeah, yeah. It's all there. <laughs> yeah. But the, the market matured over the next couple of years. And then in 2021, governments kind of just went crazy with the pandemic and created so much money and the economic picture just changed a lot. And I thought there were, there had been some significant developments uh, with Bitcoin. 
Uh, and then I realized that there were a couple of topics that were really important that I hadn't covered in the article that I wanted to cover in a book. And I decided, okay, I'll, I'll turn it into a book. And so uh, in late 2020, I started working on expanding the article and, and turning it into a book. So it's up, updated and significantly expanded. It has a number of things in it that uh, I think are important that weren't in the article, but a lot of the core ideas that are in the article about the economics uh, of Bitcoin and a framework for thinking about why it's valuable, that core stuff is still in the book. Yeah, so I, I really just want to thank you for the article itself, for your contributions that you've you taking your time on different podcasts and sharing what you're sharing, because it's helping people like myself articulate it to other people. It's helping kind of cement some of my own thinking around Bitcoin. So you're having an impact perhaps greater than you know, when there's, you know, people like us driving around in our cars, listening to you speak about this. So I just really wanted to thank you for, for what you're doing, because I'm sure not all the feedback gets back to you. So there's just more people than you perhaps know. So I appreciate this. I'm ex totally excited to get your book. I think I got an email that it shipped. So I think it's shipped. I, yep. Yeah. Yep. I so remember I'm, it shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really excited to get it. And then I guess, is it in October that it's going to be available more broadly? Is it coming up? Uh, it's actually Amazon? launched as a paperback already. So you can okay. get it on, you can get it on Amazon as a paperback. Um, the, the hard covers were only released for Kickstarter. So they're very kind of limited edition. They're not going to be sold generally. Uh, but if people want to get the paperback, yeah, Amazon's a great place and it's been available since uh, mid-August. So Amazon, the bullish case for Bitcoin and you'll find it. And then on uh, Twitter at real underscore VJ, we'll put links to that in the show notes for this episode. And uh, that's it. Anything else you just wanted to share about what you're doing, your message? Uh, I'm So I'm still working on the book. I'm working on translations now uh, because to me, this is like, it's a transformative innovation to money. This is a once in a millennium type event. And I think it's so important. So I, I love talking about this topic. It encompasses so many things. It encompasses economics and politics and, uh, you know, morality and all of these different subjects. So I, I love talking about it. And I think the ideas are so important that they should be spread around the world. Uh, so I, I want to translate these ideas and I'm working on a Spanish translation, uh, cool. a, Pol a Polish book is in the work, works Turkish, uh, Portuguese, and I just want to get it into as many languages and, as possible. And I'll tell you something interesting that I'm seeing my son's 19 in his second year of university. He's spending more time reading about Bitcoin and following people like you on Twitter than perhaps he is focusing on some of the things that uh, he's, he's learning in, in the school there. So the impact that you're having on that generation, when I hear them talk about Bitcoin between each other and then debate it, you know, why they should or why they shouldn't. So that you're having an impact on that generation that I had not anticipated because I was so focused on perhaps myself, my brother, our business, our clients. I didn't fully realize that, wow, the 19 year olds, they're learning about Bitcoin at that age. It is completely oh, yeah. changing how they're saving money. Like my, my son doesn't really see a need for a bank. He has no it's not yeah. even in the conversation. Like it's not even in the conversation. It's just something that like, I guess I'll go and get a bank account, a, another one, if I really need to, there's just no, cons you know, there's just, he's just much more interested in what Bitcoin's doing, the lightning network, how it's all working. You can see their wheels turning. And that gives me hope kind of for our next 10 years, because that generation is going to come on strong with all this stuff because of some of the content that you're putting out. So yeah, absolutely. Cool. And I think just one quick comment on that for you and I sort of reformed gold bugs. This is not <laughs> something that was particularly easy to wrap our minds around. For me, it took many years before I you know, could say that I kind of understood Bitcoin and many more years before I felt confident talking and writing about it. Uh, but for the generation coming after us, uh, they're growing up in a world where they won't know a world without Bitcoin. It'll be like the internet in a way where, you know, kids growing up today can't imagine a world that they're not completely connected to everyone they care about. And they're going to grow up in a world where they have a form of savings that isn't controlled by anyone that they can keep and they don't need a bank, just like you're saying. So this is a new world. It took you know time for us to figure it out, but for them, it's just natural. It's like a duck in water. They'll just swim in this world and they'll be, they'll, they'll love it. And it's going to be great.
Yeah, agreed. Awesome. Vijay, thank you so much for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. I'll, I'm hoping to see you in person one day. And if I'm there and Greg's running around trying to punch you again, I'll stand in between so that he doesn't punch you a second. <laughs> he was doing that out of love. He was doing that out of love. I know he was. I know him well enough that he was doing that out of love. But Vijay, thank you so much. The bullish case for Bitcoin. Pick it up if you're interested in this subject. Highly, I haven't even read it yet, and I already highly recommend it. So uh, very cool. Thank you for this, Vijay. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Hey everyone, hopefully you enjoyed that chat with VJ. You can find and follow him on Twitter at real underscore VJ, which is at real underscore V-I-J-A-Y, or Google up the bullish case for Bitcoin and you'll find his Medium article. And if you're listening to this and want to get more information on the real estate market, you can do that by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com. That's rockstarinnercircle.com where you'll find access to different books we've written, articles that we have, resources like videos and archives of this podcast. It's all there at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms. <laughs>